The scripture this morning is Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Much rather be down there, but my brother informed me that is a no-no, so I am up here. I'm obeying my brother. I am Scott Morris, um, Justin's brother, and it is a delight to be here with you this morning. Um, I get to kick off a series, and I'm very, very humbled to do so. It's a series in which, um, I believe last spring, was that y'all sent in questions to the church leadership regarding um, practical aspects of faith, of life in, in Christian faith, and also theology. And this morning, the question that we're dealing with is a question concerning the Bible. Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? Does it have errors and omissions? Um, can, can we live our lives in light of this word? And I think that's a great question. And it's a question that I'm hoping after today, you all will feel more comfortable answering. Because it's a proper place to begin this series, because it is from this foundation we answer all the rest of the questions that you're going to deal with. So it's a good place to begin here. So if you'll join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the music. Um, man, I just feel my heart still just racing and stirring at the, the driving of the drumbeat. But the, it, it's driving and the words are matching and, and the, the praises are being exalted and it should build. And it's someday... Like the awe of God is going to be felt across the earth and men will finally be silenced and driven to their knees. Lord, I pray that as we're here this morning, we may gain some of that awe in light of your word, in light of what you've given to us to know you with. Maybe there's a new reverence or respect that we will gain for something that maybe has become common to us. Lord, I give to you this time, and I offer this as a, an offering unto you, Lord. May it be pleasing and glorifying to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, it's my desire to kind of build upon what, what Justin said um, as he was praying before, before the first service and to kind of do in the team meeting of what's going to take place. And Justin was praying that we might be ushered into the throne room of God. And I, the music, the scripture readings this morning, hopefully are driving us to this place where we just want to hear from God and understand what God's done in regards to his word this morning. 
Psalm 119 has become one of my favorite psalms. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's the Hebrew alphabet. If you ever want to learn the Hebrew alphabet, go read Psalm 119. Each section is broken up. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Kof, Bab. Any Hebrew study students here? Oh, come on. No Hebrew students? Hmm. Hmm. All right. But it's a wonderful, wonderful chapter written. And it's, it's really a love letter. The affections of the psalmist in regards to God's law and God's word pours forth for 100 plus verses. He just won't shut up about how much he loves God's word and how much he dearly holds the law of God to his heart. It's beautiful. I know sometimes if you're given that as a scripture reading, you're like, oh boy, this is going to have to little add, you know, add a little extra time to my time with God this morning because I've got to get through this. But I encourage you, just take some time and, and read one section at a time. And just let the psalmist's love for the word of God saturate your heart. This morning, I'm answering these questions that I've already addressed with you this morning regarding the formation and the reliability of scripture. Um, I had the, the privilege and pleasure of, of going to seminary, and it was such a wonderful gift to sit underneath some men who really taught me to love the formation of God's Word. And for some people, it's a pretty dry subject. It's a pretty boring subject. It deals with a lot of history. deals with a lot of facts. It deals with a lot of concepts. And for them, it's like, yeah, that's great, and I'm going to you know, study something else that's a little more entertaining. But for me, this was like, oh. So I apologize. I probably should have a pocket protector this morning, a little tape on my glasses, because I'm going to geek out on you guys a little bit this morning, because this is really exciting stuff to me. It is really something that is a passion for my heart. But before we begin and dive into this, I want us to start at a very basic place, in a place that I think we should all start. So you're, you as a church body here, New Community Church has a statement of faith. Most of you probably knew that. Some of you maybe didn't. It's found online underneath what we believe, right? And you click on that button and it pops up with a statement of faith and you can click on that. And I did that and I copied the, the fourth statement because it speaks to what we're dealing with this morning. And this is what this church body believes about the scripture. And I want to begin here and break this down for a moment because it's super important for us to understand what you have all said together. We believe. It's one of the things I love the creeds and I love when I hear the creeds read because it is a corporate, it is a church statement of fact of what we believe. And you as a new community church believe, we believe that every word, not some, not parts, not most, but we believe every word in the original writings, okay? It's an important statement. And the very autographs that were penned through the original authors of Scripture, that in those original autographs, those original writings, they are inspired by God and without error. Now, this word is inspired. We get the reasoning for this word found in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that the man of God and the woman of God and all of God's people and the children of God may be complete. 
equipped for every good work. If you have not committed those verses to memory, I would so challenge you to do so. These are core foundational scriptures in regards to the word of God. And when it says breathed out by God, it's like this, okay? How many band people do I have in the room? Don't be ashamed. This is not football practice. Band people, raise your hand, be proud. Okay, here we go. I played the trumpet a few days ago. I played the trumpet, okay? I wasn't very good at it, but I played the trumpet. Now, the guy sitting next to me played the trombone. Do the trumpet and the trombone sound the same? No. But for my people who know music, is an A an A? Even if it sounds musically, because it's coming through an instrument a little bit differently, it's still an A. It's still C sharp, it's still B flat. It's still a D. You know, when you play those notes on an instrument, they play that note, but it sounds a little bit differently because it's coming through a different instrument. Well, this is what's going on with the original authors. You got King David. He is a warrior. He is a poet. He is a man's man. He is strong, surrounded by the strong men. And when God, by the Holy Spirit, breathes and speaks into David, when David goes to pen it down, he is writing as a poet, as a king, and as a warrior. But when you got Matthew, the tax collector, the Holy Spirit is speaking into Matthew, and he begins to pen and write down, he speaks as if he's a tax collector, as if he's trained in these ways, and it looks differently, it sounds differently. But the coolest thing is, is that because it is originating with God and being spoken through them, every word is whose? God's. With the nuances of humanity that it was spoken through. And it is without error. Now you may think this morning, well, duh, that's what my church believes. You ought to be excited about that. Because a lot of churches are parting ways with statements like that. Churches are moving away from believing that God's word is authoritative, true in every aspect. They've gone to mostly true, partially true, and places culturally relevant. Why? How did they make this move? Well, it's because their starting point changed. And this morning, I've got to take a moment and talk with you about starting points because it's, it's as important, it's as significant for you to understand. In the pre-modern period, we're going to talk a little bit of philosophy. Any philosophy majors here? My goodness, what are they teaching at Cedarville? Any theology majors? Okay, you're a philosophy major too. I don't know if you knew that or not. Theology and philosophy, you can't divorce them. You can't separate them. They're, they're bound up together. So I'm just couching you in the philosophy group. Perfect. Great. One guy's on my team. All right. He's going to correct me after the sermon. Anyways, so modernity. Pre-modernity, okay? You have this time frame in which mankind strove to know and understand the world in which he lived in based upon what he knew about God. What he understood and what he knew about God drove, drove his understanding of everything else in the world. Well, what does it mean to be a father? Well, what does God say? What does it mean to be a mother? What does God say? What does it mean to be a servant? I don't know. What does God say? That was a great place to be Right? And in which we understand, in which we saw the world through this beautiful lens of God's eyes. Now, people got it wrong. 
And people mess things up because they misunderstood scriptures. But it was a time and a place where in which mankind understood the world through God's word. Well, there's an individual that came along. Some of you may have heard of him. He's got a famous statue that kind of reflects the, the period, Rene Descartes. Any of y'all heard of Rene Descartes? He makes this famous statement, I think, therefore I am. Well, churches that have moved away from the authority and the foundation of Scripture have bought into modernity and post-modernity. Because instead of us understanding all of life through the lens of Scripture and God's Word, they've replaced it with mankind. Man now is the arbitrator of all truth. Man determines what is right, what is good, what is holy, and what is just. Boy, we've done a good job with that. And the only reason and way God can, can exist if mankind can agree upon the reason for which God can exist or what kind of God should exist or what we can rightly say about God is all determined by man in modernity. Well, the church got really ticked off at this guy called Nietzsche, okay? Because Nietzsche makes this statement, God is dead. And we get ticked about that, right? because we're like, God is not dead. And we all know who got the last saying in that, okay? Nietzsche's now dead, and pretty understand, he understands that God is not dead. But all Nietzsche was doing was drawing the conclusion to modernity. Because if mankind is the basis for thought, for reason, for right, for good, then guess what? God is dead. Because mankind can't agree upon it because we're fallen we're sinful, we're power-hungry, we're self-absorbed. That's what man is. And so if man's left to determine what God is, we're going to end up in a really, really bad place. So this morning, unapologetically and with great bias, I'm saying I'm starting with this presupposition that God wrote this word and God is the basis from which I understand the formation and the reliability of the text. It's where I'm beginning this morning. And that's where you, as a church body, say you're beginning too. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'm so glad you're here. And you may be in this modernist point, and I'm hoping this morning I can challenge you a bit. I can push you a little bit to begin to understand that God's word is not something that is mystical, but is absolutely spiritually formed. And it is, can be reasoned in faith. You see, you don't have a blind faith, church. And don't let the world tell you you have a blind faith. God has given you so much beautiful, wonderful evidence of his existence and the creation and the formation of his word that you don't have to sit there and say, oh, I just accept it based upon what the pastor says on a Sunday morning. No! This is an absolutely reasoned faith, and it is beautiful. But when I say reasoned faith, I say God is my foundation from which I reason, not man. And if you're dealing in academic circles, this will be a challenge for you because Christians are invited to the academic table. But the minute we say our starting point is the word of God and the existence of God, they're happy to have us at the table, but they muzzle us because our starting point is different. So this morning, if you think you're going to take this information and argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven, you will be rapidly proven wrong. 
In this day and age, more than ever, it is our relationships and the way we love one another that's going to usher people into the kingdom of God. But this knowledge that hopefully we can talk about this morning will equip you so that you won't be afraid to enter into the conversation. Van Hooser, in his first theology, talks about wading into the Rubicon. It is okay for a Christian to wade into the Rubicon with the world and dialogue across if we have our firm foundation in the Word of God. And our starting point is the fact that God is the one that authored the Scriptures, and God is the one who gives all of life meaning and purpose. That was the introduction. You ready? See, y'all are messed up because guess what? The first service had a backstop with the second service. You guys got no backstop. Here we go. All right. So let's look at this. We got the Old Testament and New Testament. We've got to handle this a little bit differently because the Old Testament and the New Testament were formed in a little different settings and in different ways. So in the Old Testament, we have this wonderful thing called oral tradition. How many of you have heard of oral tradition? Right. It's the telling of story. And the Hebrew people were magnificent at telling story. They faithfully told generation after generation after generation the truth about God has done. The truth about God's people, God's deliverance of his people. And they're very, you know what, you've got to be admit, for oral tradition and handing on oral tradition, they're very honest about their mistakes and their brokenness. You've got to give that. Like, like, wow, I don't know if I'd be that honest about how many times I like ran away from God and, and like God calling me a prostitute and like stuff like that, right? Like they're just like they're passing this oral tradition down and write, begin writing this tradition down. And it's the Hebrew scriptures are called Tanakh, which is a, basically an acronym for Torah, Nivim, and Ketuvim. Okay? And Torah, most of us know what the Torah is, it's the Pentateuch, it's the first five books of the Old Testament. Ready? Let's say them together. Jan- Ha-ha, outstanding. All right. Well, that's the easy part, because the next ones aren't broken down quite like we know them. The Nevi'im are eight books. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. And then you've got the Ketuvim, which includes the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, and the books of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So that's the Hebrew scriptures, okay? That's how they would have broken them down. Now, you need to understand that in this breaking down of scripture, then you've got, okay, how did these books get decided were to be scripture? Well, that's a great question. We don't know the definitive answer to that. All that we know is they were accepted as what we would, in the English Bible, use 39 books, or for the Hebrews, the 24 scrolls, were accepted very early on and doesn't seem to be attested against. The Hebrew people understand these are the books of the Bible. And we see this in the creation of the Septuagint. Anybody know what the Septuagint is? What's the Septuagint? Very good. Greek version of the Septuagint. You know why it's called the Septuagint? Very good. Six from each tribe, okay? So 70 to 72 scholars faithfully, faithfully 
translated the Old Testament text into Greek, Koine Greek, common Greek of that age. Now, why is this so exciting? Well, because when we're looking at the Old Testament, it is some of the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament for looking at and showing that the text is real and true. Okay. Then, in 1949, this incredible event happened. And the irony of the event, please don't miss this, as the story goes, okay, whether or not it's a true story, we'll find out someday. But as the story goes, there's a shepherd in Qumran in Israel, okay? And he is out watching the sheep, and one sheep wanders away. Don't miss the irony of the story here. One sheep wanders away. And he goes and seeks after this one sheep. And as he's seeking after this one sheep, he sees this cave. And being doing what good boys do and good shepherds do, he picks up a rock and he throws it into the cave to see what's in there or see if anything comes out or what, you know, just being a boy. But when he throws this stone in there, he hears not the rock hitting walls of a cave, but he hears the shattering of pottery. Well, he goes to investigate. And when he goes to investigate, he discovers not just one jar but several jars and as he opens them up and he puts his hands down in there which took a lot of bravery in my book like he put his hands down there and he's, pull, he's pulling out these scrolls well they take it to scholars and scholars began to in 1949 to research these scrolls now you got to understand up to this point the oldest manuscripts we had of the new of the, of the old testament was after christ and all of a sudden, they discover these scrolls. And maybe you know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in these scrolls, we have manuscripts that are dating back to 140, 200 years before Christ. Now, why am I geeking out right now? Because secular scholars were bashing the Old Testament saying, you don't have any early manuscript support. What you've got is a text that's got errors, that's got omissions, that's got additions. And this, is, this can't be the true Old Testament. And when they discovered the Qumran scrolls, here were scrolls that predate the birth of Christ by 200 years. And what did they demonstrate? That the Greek, excuse me, the Hebrew text that they had was proven accurate and correct and good by this discovery of a guy looking for sheep. Isn't that cool? I mean, I, I, every time I tell a story, I get goosebumps. I mean, this is how good our God is. He uses a shepherd boy, which don't miss the irony of that, looking for his lost sheep to prove that the Old Testament text can be trusted and is faithful and true. What a beautiful, wonderful gift God gives us. God just loves us so much. He says, hey, I'm going to silence the critics so that you will have confidence in your word that I have given to you so that you might know me. Oh, it's good stuff. Well, we're really cool. I know. You're like, oh, I'm glad he's excited. But anyway, sorry. So the creation of the Septuagint, you know what's another thing that's really cool about the Septuagint? Is that when we look in the New Testament, the quotes that we have from the Old Testament, where do they come from? The Septuagint. And you're like, whoa. God used these men to faithfully trans to translate into Greek, and those that translation was used in the New Testament is Scripture. God faithfully preserving his word for us. Another cool little side story. When they were translating 
story goes that as they're translating, as you look in Daniel's translation in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are words that don't make any sense. They don't make any Greek sense. There's no Greek word that matches that. It's because they ran across a word in Aramaic or in Hebrew that they could not, they didn't understand what its meaning was. And so in order to preserve that word, they literally sounded it out in the Greek language and wrote that nonsense word in the text to preserve the original meaning. Like, this is so cool. Like, this is not the day and age of computers and the day and age of printers. This is the day and age of guys sitting in dark rooms by candlelight, pen in hand, writing on parchment, writing on vellum, which is animal skin, in order to preserve God's word so that you may have what you have in front of you today. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New? All right. How do we know what books were included in the New Testament? Well, we see a very, very, very early on agreement, okay? We can arm wrestle over when Revelation was written, okay? Based upon the destruction of the temple, people want to argue one way or the other, okay? Let's say it was early as prior to AD 70. Let's say some would argue later than AD 70, okay? Written by John, okay? Well, we got the closing of that canon. We have, by mid second century by about a hundred years later a consensus amongst the early church fathers what was scripture 24 out of 27 books and the three books that were in question were second and third john and jude and the only reason they were in question is because they were so short can it like really be scripture if it's just like this short and this little blurb is some of it missing and there were some questions about that but by the fourth century the canon was was complete and was closed and that's something else that you need to really understand about this church's statement of, regarding Scripture. This church believes, and I firmly believe, that the canon is closed. That when Revelation ended, no more Scripture. God has given us everything we need to rightly know Him and follow Him. Everything we need. And so by this time in the 4th century, now the reason the church council got together in the 4th century was not to decide upon what books were should be included, but rather which ones should be excluded. Because we had some gospels or some books that were being written that had nothing to do with the truth of God's word. And that supported false theology and teachings that, that, that God, that Jesus that the death of Jesus Christ was a great thing because it freed him of his cavernous body, his flesh, and that his spirit now could be released into the enlightenment and in this world of bright lights. And it's called Gnosticism. And there were books written about Gnosticism and the early church said that is not the gospel. That is not the truth of God's word. And they cut him out. That's why you don't have the gospel of Thomas as part of God's word. They based these decisions upon relationship to an apostle, whether an apostle wrote it, whether it was closely connected to an apostle, and its writings and its teachings. Now, what about the words that are used in the New Testament? This is where I get to overwhelm you a little bit. I love this part. All right, here we go. This picture up here, oh, formation, you want to go in there? We go. That picture up there? That tiny little thing. That's called Papyri 52, okay? Papyri 52 is the oldest manuscript we have in the New Testament. Oldest. Dates back 
early second century. 125, 130 A.D. Do you realize we're talking That's really cool, folks. There ain't nothing in the United States that even compares to that kind of age. Isn't that cool? We've got this early, early text. You have, of the manuscripts of the New Testament, 5,000 Greek manuscripts. 5,000. That is a ton of evidence to God's word, to the preservation of God's Bible. 5,000. And I know maybe you're not appreciating that book because you're like, I just read a book that was 5,000 pages the other day. Congratulations. Good job. Like, but you know what? 5,000 manuscripts is a ton of scribes sitting down to faithfully write down, preserve God's word, and so that they could teach it and give it to others and pass it along. Now, the next most copied book, in case you're wondering, well, maybe there's other books that have been copied like that, is Homer's Iliad. Anybody know Homer's Iliad? Read it? Fell asleep during it? Okay, great. Homer's Iliad, a little over a thousand manuscripts. That's the next closest copied book. And we're talking Greek. But guess what? Other nations understood that this was God's word and so the greeks they were happy for them great you keep copying it in greek but we want it in our language and trap you thought wycliffe was the first bible translators not even close you got guys by candlelight translating this into latin Ten thousand latin manuscripts of the greek new testament syriac coptic ethiopic slavic armenian Combined 930,000 copies. It's not up for debate. Is the New Testament God's word? It's not up for debate. Are these the sayings of Jesus Christ? God has so faithfully preserved his word for you and I that we might know that this is his word to us so how do we handle when you've got a manuscript and I'm going to tell you something no two manuscripts are perfectly alike none now in your head you're going then Scott you just seem to contradict yourself because you just told me I could trust God's word but now you're telling me that there's no Manuscript that's the same as another manuscript, then how do we know what we got is the original? What we got is good. What he got is reliable, trustworthy, true. Well, there's two different ways of handling these variants. The first way was handled by a guy named Erasmus, and he lived about 1500 AD. And about that time, there was between 30 and 50 manuscripts, okay? And he looked at these manuscripts and he was translating the text into Old English. Okay? And translating these texts, he used these manuscripts. And basically, what he did is when he encountered a variation in a manuscript, he began to count up how many different variants of each were there. And the one with the most won. That's the King James Version. Okay? One way of handling the variants. Well, we kept discovering more and more and more and more and more and more manuscript evidence. 
And all of a sudden we realized, you know, is, is this majority wins the great way, to, the best way to handle manuscript evidence and manuscript variants. And so they began to develop another way called the eclectic or the text critical method of evaluation. If you have the NIV, if you have the ESV, if the NASB, the NET, the NLT, these are all results of critical text method or eclectic method of Bible textual criticism. Okay? What they did is they looked at the internal evidence of a variant and said, is this what the author would tend to use? Is this, is this what the author, was this their theological point? And they would look at the external evidence. They would look and see how old is this reading? And where, where, what region did we can find this reading from? And they began to evaluate this. And you got the Nestle Allen's text and the UBS4 that have developed from this. Now, two drastically different ways of handling these variants in the manuscripts. You're like, Scott, what is the point? Great, I'm about ready to get to it. Hold on. This is what you, brought, you paid the money for. You ready? Of the two different ways to do this, two vastly different ways, none, zero, zilch, zip, nunca, nada, zero, deal with cardinal doctrine. None of them deal with salvation and faith and grace alone in Jesus Christ. Now, you may have gone to sleep on me. 5,000 manuscripts plus 10,000 manuscripts plus 9,300 manuscripts. None of them are the same. And none of them deal with cardinal doctrine issues. How much does God want you to know him? How much do we now start to go, wait a minute. Maybe I ought to think a little bit more highly of this book that I've got in my hand than I do because God has gone way out of his way to make sure I know him. Bible scholar and PhD in textual criticism says this, but here's the bottom line. All the manuscripts, regardless of the text type, teach the same gospel. There are no cardinal doctrines that hang on a textual variant. Stephen Neal said it this way, the very worst Greek manuscript now in existence contains enough of the gospel in an unadulterated form to lead, the, to lead the reader in the way of salvation. Can I get an amen? Studying his word. Being in his word. Mankind has tried to destroy it. Mankind has tried to disprove it. And I want to tell you a story of cautionary that I forgot to tell the first service. There was an individual who studied God's word. And he studied it academically and with great fervor. He was one of the very, very few that could call Bruce Metzger his doctoral father. Now, most of you don't know biblical research. Now, I'm trying to put this in a way that you might understand. Um, do I use a sports analogy? Most ladies will hate me. Um, here it is. It's like Bruce Metzger, I mean, he was the man when it came 
to studying the New Testament and textual criticism. He wrote more books and was a faithful student. I mean, he was the man. And to be selected as his student and to study underneath him was, was a rare exception. Rare! Very few people got to say, ah, Doc, Bruce Besker was my doctoral father. There was this individual, Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman studied the text academically. He studied the text for variance from approach of scientific approach and method. Bruce Metzger, a couple years back, released a book called Misquoting Jesus, Why We Cannot Trust the Quotes that We Have of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. You see, Bruce Metzger went from, excuse me, Bart Ehrman went from the foundation of seeing everything through the lens of God's word, his holiness, his righteousness, and all of a sudden, Bart Ehrman became the arbitrator of truth. And God's word, though he studied it, he could probably quote it better than any of us in here, walked away from faith and has abandoned it altogether and is now the head professor of religion and New Testament studies at North Carolina University. We know this to be God's word. We are excited that we can look to the manuscript evidence, that we can look to how he's faithfully preserved. But brothers and sisters, this is not an academic exercise. God has revealed this, preserved this, so it might change our hearts and our lives. It is reliable, it is trustworthy, it is true. Now there are sometimes, I don't, I don't go down this road to, to dog things up, but there, there are some things that I believe as teachers of God's word that we need to stand in the pulpit and say, like, this is not good for you. There are certain English translations. So when people go from the Greek, so the, the NAS, the UBS, the BHS, these are Hebrew and Greek, transla- or Hebrew and Greek editions of the, of the Bible, they're really good. But what, what happens is then people bring them over to the English. And there are certain English English translations that are really aren't translations. There's somebody's perspective and viewpoint. And while I've got great appreciation for the message, I, I have great appreciation. I've looked at it, I've, I've gone through it, and I've, like, sometimes I'll reference it. That's not my deep study material. And then there are translations where people have added so much to the original text, you've lost the meaning completely. And I want to warn against one Bible in particular, and I'm not trying to grind an axe on this, but the Passion Bible is one of those things that is coming forth and it's coming up and it's new and it's coming out. And I would just, like, don't do it. Like, go read the Psalms for what the Psalms say. They've completed the Psalms. But if you go read that and you read it, compare it to next to, a, to an NIV or an ESV or an NLT or a King James Version, you're going to be like, man, I don't, I don't get the same thing out of this. So be wary. Go to your elders. Talk to your rich spiritual leaders and say, hey, is this a good thing that's coming out? There are so many good translations out there. Please, please be wary. All right, enough said on that. Let's move on. All right, let's wrap this. So what? So what? Why take the time to study this this morning? Well, because you asked the question. And you opened the door for me, and so I'm going to walk through that door. 
One of the reasons is to, and I don't mean to be with a backhanded comment here, but church, this is one of the most ignorant church generations that's ever lived. We don't know our history. And that was really demonstrated. And some of you may know this, some of you don't. When the Da Vinci Code came out, it rocked the church. Are you kidding me? A novel? Rocked the church to its core. Like, what? Jesus wasn't married to Mary Magdalene. Like, what in the world? Like, it rocked the church. Why? And that demonstrated that we as church leaders haven't done a good job of equipping the church and understanding this is the truth of Jesus Christ. And then when stuff like that pops up, we should go, we should laugh at it and then get ticked. Like, that is not the truth of God, and that is not the truth about my Jesus. So many people were persuaded. So we need to talk about these things. And some of you probably won't remember hardly anything of what I said, but hopefully, hopefully at the end of this sermon, you're going, man, I'm a little more in awe of my God who has given me his word, and I need to spend some more time in it. Brothers and sisters, God wants to be known. And not just known, God wants to be rightly known. In CBR, it's a Bible reading program we, we use at the church that we're a part of, Soma Detroit. We just got done reading through Ezekiel. And I, I challenge you, if you ever read through Ezekiel, like every time you see the statement, and God did this so that he might be known, underline it. It's replete through the prophets. God did this so that he might be known. He did this so he might be known. God has given us his word so that he might be rightly known. Now, when I say rightly, that means that we're understanding God for who he says he is. He is the informer of truth to us. We are not the arbitrators of who God is. God is the arbitrator of who God is. God wants to be rightly known, so he's preserved his word for us. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. I'll never forget one time I was in a counseling session. And the counselor turned and just stopped the session. He turned to me and he said to me, Scott, do you know God loves you? And I just began to weep. I know in this room this morning there are some of you that are questioning whether God loves you or not. The trials, the tribulations, the things that you're going through, you may not verbalize it, but in your heart, you're questioning it. I want to remind you this morning, God loves you, and the very fact that you can reach and grab your Bible and hold it in your hands is one of the most powerful demonstrations of that love. God loves you, and he's preserved his word so he can talk with you, so he can reveal his character to you. This is a beautiful thing. And if we're feeling far and distant from him, maybe it's because we haven't picked it up enough. Maybe it's because we need to get back into it and hear his voice. Hear the cries of David in the Psalms. Hear Paul in the midst of persecution 
speaking about that nothing else matters than the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loves you and me. And the existence and the preservation of this word is a powerful demonstration of it. Finally, I want you to know God is great. Look at the manuscripts that are support. Look at the oral tradition that was confirmed. God is so great. God is good. God has touched out our hearts and our lives by this word and being in our tongue and our language in order for us to understand who he is. God is gracious. We as a race of people have tried to subvert, destroy, wipe out God's word. And God faithfully preserves it. God faithfully brings it. Despite, in spite of us. And God is glorious. He is so, I just think of the word splendor as I think of all this that he has done to bring us his word. Francis Schaeffer, biblical scholar and theologian, likes to ask this, how should then we live? You've been given this knowledge this morning. And a lot of it's facts that <laughs> will go away, and that's okay. But my desire for us this morning is that this evidence and this conversation or this, this topic of discussion with you is lead you to this point of, man, I've got to get back in the Word. I should be more in awe of God's Word. I'm not asking you, please, this is not the object of our worship. God is the object of our worship. These are his words to us. When we read them, do we treat them like that? When we read these words, are we, in, are we reading them for what am I going to get out of this today? Are we reading them to discover the power, the presence, the purpose of our God? I'm hoping that after this day, as we head out of here, that you're like, man, I want to, I want to get into God's word. And brothers and sisters, I'm so guilty of this myself. My day begins at five o'clock in the morning and I'm, I'm, I'm up early so that I might get my lunch together and my shakes together and get ready to head out to go to the gym and then to work. And if I'm running behind, what do you think is the first thing to go? It's my time with God. It's being in the word. But let me tell you something. The strength that I gain in the gym I'm getting older. The strength is failing. It's humbling, but it's failing. But the strength that I gain from being in God's word, from making that my first priority, will never fail me. It will never fail you either. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for your word and the gift that it is to us. And Lord, I, I look out across this room and I see a lot of young people. And the world is screaming at them, vying for their attention. Holy Spirit, I pray you would powerfully move in their hearts and draw them into your word. That they might perceive the world through the lens of Scripture. They might understand the things that they learn and the things that they hear about, the things that they, they see on 
feeding them, that they might begin to perceive those things through the lens of the word of God. And may they might understand that God so loved them. He preserved this word for them so they might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ found within these pages. Thank you, God. I give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.